Are you creative? That's a rhetorical question, because of course you are. A creative is anyone who makes something from nothing. Creativity is everywhere and in everyone. And that means you. So what's been stopping your inner creative from bursting out? Probably fear. Fear is part of creating something. It's a real bee. But don't worry, we'll help you get through that. This podcast will be your guide to claim your creativity, redefine your relationship with fear, and build a new life centered around creative expression. You're going to learn tools from people who have found ways to manage life's ups and downs by turning their experience into purpose. Think of this podcast as your very own creative community. This is Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. Hello, it's Lauren here with another creative check-in. So this one's really interesting because we've been talking about releases a lot. And a lot of times when you're releasing a project, people will say, you know, you only get one chance for a first impression. But what I've come to realize due to a very specific piece of art I watched was that sometimes in life, there actually are takebacks. And what brought this on was Motown or more directly, watching the Motown documentary on Showtime, which I highly recommend you check out. I'm about halfway through it. And anything surrounding Motown is so inspiring. If you don't know the history of the music, do yourself a favor, watch the documentary, go visit the museum in Detroit. It is so, so mind-blowing what they did. But the song Shop Around, okay, is made popular by Smokey Robinson. When it first was out, it wasn't a hit. It was out for a couple weeks. It was in kind of a slower song. And Barry Gordy, who is the founder of Motown, called Smoking and was like, listen, the way we did this song is all wrong. We need to take it off, like take it off the shelves at the time and go back to the studio and redo it. And so what they did was did a different production on it, put a different groove on it, re-released it, and it became a hit. So to me, this is a great example of right idea, wrong time, and wrong setting. So it was like, all the wrong things surrounding it, but the idea, the bones of the project were good because when they put it back out, it was a hit. And I guess I never considered the fact that like, even if you release something and it's not right, if not that many people get their eyes or ears on what you're doing, you can actually take it back. Now, granted, best case scenario, you wouldn't have released it in the first place and you would, you know, perfect it before it goes out. But it's just a good example of that no matter what, you're kind of protected because that was a huge song and it had some visibility on it. But even with that, when they took it back and then re-released it, it went to the top of the charts. Oh, and, and another little thing that kind of dovetails off of that is that when you're doing a lot of projects, as I am right now, it's really easy to think, I got to keep my nose to the grindstone and I can never take a break and all I need to do is work. But it is so important to watch, read and observe other creations for inspiration Because I was going to talk about something entirely different for this creative check-in. But when I saw that, I realized that was the message I needed to deliver. And so sometimes taking a break actually, and this is something that's come up again and again, but just want to give you a real life example. Taking a break can actually inspire you to do something more creative with your project. So remember, if you release something and it doesn't get the reception you want or you think, you know what, I could do it a little bit better. Follow the method of Barry Gordy and feel free to take it back and re-release under different circumstances because you might just find a hit. Okay, now to the guest. 
Kristen A.G. is a multi-instrumentalist, entrepreneur, composer, songwriter, and public speaker, best known for speaking at South by Southwest and ASCAP Expo, founding her company, 411 Music Group, and getting one of her sound designs placed in a recent trailer for Game of Thrones. That's right. Kristen's creative passion began when she was just 11 years old and fell in love with a handsome babe called the violin. Despite being told by her prospective teacher that she was too old to start playing and that she had, quote, fat fingers, she turned that adversity into motivation and ended up becoming the first chair violinist by high school. However, as so often happens with what we love, she needed a break. Kristen and her violin cooled things down for a bit after high school, and she went on a really fascinating educational journey, which you'll hear all about. In the end, she got a certificate in sound engineering from the Los Angeles Recording School. Following that, she toured all over with various bands and even learned how to play bass from Daryl Jones, who's the bassist for the Rolling Stones. You can't mark your life or career off of one single moment. It's the accumulation of all of these events that leads you down whatever path you end up on. So because no one shows up to one of your shows doesn't mean you need to quit doing what you're doing. Maybe a thousand people will show up to your next one or in five years that will happen. Or maybe like at some point you reach a turning point where you're like, no one's still showing up. So now what do I do? Like maybe I'll start writing full time instead and not perform. Art is sort of should be a fluid thing. Growing weary of the road, she transitioned into writing full-time. Working as a writer, she would often sell the rights to her songs. She realized that was BS and that she should be capitalizing on her creativity as much as possible. So with that, she decided to start her own company, 411 Music Group, which provides tons of different musical services, including custom scoring, music publishing, a music library, artist development, and digital distribution for music rights holders. I wanted to have Kristen on the show because she's a great example of how we can take a creative path that we love but are dissatisfied with and turn it into our own business. On another, more serious note, she had a near-death experience that really changed her perspective on creativity and life. During our conversation, she reveals her takeaway and it's a must-listen for anyone on the path to betterment, especially spiritual betterment. From our conversation, you'll learn how to deal with creative criticism, why a late start can be a great start, the power of deadlines, how to push through creative blocks, how to deal with lack of support, and why both light and darkness can exist at once. Now here she is, Kristen A.G. I like talking about the inciting incident of creativity. I know you started playing violin at an incredibly young age. But when you trace the lines of your life, when do you think the inciting incident of your creative journey was? I actually started playing violin like late comparatively. So apparently you're supposed to start when you're three. Well, that's rude. And my first (laughs) violin teacher didn't want to take me because she thought I was too old to learn. She looked at my hands. She was like, oh, you have fat fingers though. So that's good. I'll take you anyway. I was like, oh, you're telling me I'm too old and fat. And I'm 11. 11. But before that, I got like a... Like we always had a piano in the house and then I got a guitar, I think when I was nine, we had a drum kit when I was seven and then violin became my instrument at 11. But honestly, like once I picked that up, it was really like, that was it for me. It's refocused my entire life. Like that's kind of why I do what I do now. And so I would just, I'm finding myself doing this now, actually. Like I feel like I'm 12 because I would go to friends' houses and spend the night like on weekends 
and I'd wake up on a Sunday and they'd be, be watching TV and I would call my mom to go home because I just wanted to play violin and mm. I was just super obsessive and I'm feeling that now. Like all I want to do right now is write and be playing violin and working out ideas and I have so many, my head's sort of full. So I feel a bit scatterbrained doing like everything else in life, you know? I don't know if that really answers your question at all. A hundred percent. So the inciting incident of your creative life was really when you discovered your love of violin. Yeah. And I'm wondering, because there's been a few things in my life, like the moment when your teacher told you you had fat fingers and you were too old. (laughs) And for me, those words still like haunt me today. Do you ever think about that moment or was it just kind of like whatever and you moved on? No, it wasn't. That teacher was amazing. Actually, I just saw her like four or five years ago. And it was amazing to reconnect with her. I didn't take offense to it. It was meant as a compliment. But it's funny to like look back on that and be like, oh, this is not like a typical thing you would have in your life, I guess, at the, at such a young age. And But for me, I think because I started at 11 and everyone else started at three, like you don't make the decision to start when you're three years old. Like a parent puts you into that. So because I decided I was so determined And that is what propelled me like forward, I think. So when she was like, you're too old to learn, I was like, oh, yeah, we'll watch. And I do that still today. If I get discouraging news or somebody's like, you can't do this. At first, I'm like, oh, my God, you're right. I can't. But then like within a day or two of processing it, and I'm like, no, I don't know if I can say fuck that. Yeah, you can. But like, fuck that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I can do that and I'm going to do it better and like watch me. How do you make that mental shift from feeling like a failure to fuck that? It's not even a process for me. It's just like it happens. Like I'm not necessarily quick on my feet with speaking or I have to conceptualize something. So when it's an an initial like you can't do this, I have to sit with that for a while because I'm like, oh my God, yeah, right. And I can think of all the reasons why I can't do that. But then I wake up one day and I'm like, no, they don't know what they're talking about. I think it's that first like deflated moment that I have to sit with and then I bounce back and I'm like, what are they like? What do they know? If (laughs) I can do that, like you can do it and anybody can. So I just kind of like flip it in my head, but I have to like process that Mm. first. Yeah. So I guess for somebody else out there who is feeling defeated, maybe take the time to process it, go through what they're actually saying and then debunk it. Yeah, I mean, my director of licensing is instant. No, she goes into the instant fuck that mode. Mm -hmm. But for me, it takes me a while. And I think everyone is different with their timing of processing all the aspects of emotion, whether it's feeling deflated and you can't do it or fear or whatever. Everyone has their own timeline. And so once you figure out yours, then you can realize like, oh, I feel really bad right now. But I think in a few days or in an hour or whatever, I will probably like bounce back and and be more encouraged or feel like you're driven more, mm-hmm. like faster. Remembering the goal. Yeah. So you mentioned that when you were at your friend's houses, you'd call your mom and go and play the violin because that's really what you wanted to be doing. Did you have familial support for your creative path growing up? Yeah, definitely. Like I said, we had a piano in the house. I got a guitar when I was nine that my brother stole and Wait, wait, playing. wait. Let's back that up. Where did he take that from? Um, <laughs> yes. No, no, no. Sorry. He didn't steal it. He stole from me. Oh, okay, okay. 
<laughs> it's like, oh, are, are we confessing I I to a crime? Clarify here? That. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I got a, a guitar when I was for my birthday when I was nine, uh, okay. and my, I opened it, and my brother was like, "What?" Like he turned to my mom. This is actually on camera. He's like, "You didn't tell me you were buying her this," and it became his instrument. Oh, <laughs> and then he started playing, but. No one in my family like is in music actually, so it's not like I come from this long line of musicians. I wish that I did to a certain degree. I think that has weird expectations that you have to then live up to. Like I have to be better than my parent, which mm-hmm. is hard. But yeah, I mean my my family are more like you know doctors, like lawyers, economists, Lane, and then I'm like <laughs> hey. like. Music business professional, violinist, and <laughs> sound engineer, you know. So there was, there's always been supportive, like, you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things my parents did right um, was say, like, when I would ask, I was a very curious kid. And when I would ask them questions, they would say, well, what do you think? I'm like, oh, I mean... <laughs> I don't know. I guess I need to think about that. So every time I'd ask them something, they'd ask me what I thought about it. And it helped me to sort of like think things through in in more of a circular way, I guess. So I'm like you. We're very lucky to have support from the family on pursuing the creative path. But lots of people who listen to this don't have that sort of familial base and are constantly, in addition to the treachery of pursuing any creative industry, getting told by those who are closest to them that they can't do it or they shouldn't do it. So what would be your advice to those people who are struggling because of that lack of familial support and foundation? Yeah. I mean, trust me, like I've had that, Mm -hmm. my fair share of that, and not necessarily just from my family, but from like external sources, which Mm -hmm. is almost, I mean, I wouldn't say that's harder. Like if it's not you know, your family isn't supportive of you. That's like your baseline. But, you know, I've had people say you can't do this or, you know, you, oh, you're a girl. Like, of course, you don't know what you're talking about when we're talking about like base amps and whatever. So I think that's a struggle. It's really hard to to flip your mentality and think, no, I can do this and I will. It's hard. I think that's a life journey. I'm still going through that. Mm-hmm. And I had the supportive family then, you know, thought I could do whatever I wanted. I think I would encourage everyone to doubt what people tell them, you know, no matter what it is, like think about it and, and think like, is that right? Like, is that right for me? And everyone's different. And you can't just put somebody else's like life and their applications of how they do things onto your life. Like everyone is unique and an individual and, you have to sort of like find your own path with whatever guidance you can find. And I would in that case probably like, and I have done this, like seek mentors, you Mm -hmm. know, find people who you love and respect. And for me, it was early on and still like listening to different artists who I am like just dumbfounded by. I'm like, these people are like magical, like Aurora is this for me, like a magical fairy <laughs> Is princess. Aurora the name of someone you admire? Yeah. Okay. She's she's a, an artist who um, is wrapped by Buddha Music. They were our first sub-publishers in Europe. And um, so she's not even like affiliated with us at all, but she's just so amazing. Her lyrics and her song structures and everything are so brilliant. And it has a message and she's so young to be like sending that message to people. So I listen to her. I'm like, oh my God, yeah, like we can do that. Like, <laughs> you know, let's help everybody and support each other. But yeah, I think you you find it, you have to find inspiration wherever you can. 
Yeah. And you mentioned getting a mentor. What do you think is the best way to go about seeking a mentor? Oh, man. I never had a mentor. So for me, that's a tough question. So let me restate it. If somebody was seeking your mentorship, Mm -hmm. what would be the best way to approach you? I love helping people like as much as I can. And I... I feel like I I do mentor people, even if it's my staff and my team, because what I've learned over the years is, is being like a dictator and telling people like what to do and like leading based on fear. It doesn't work for mm-hmm. me, at least. And so I am trying to find like, what is this person good at and hone in on that skill and then develop from there. So if anybody asks me, I will like sit down and talk to them. And I think it's just starting, you know, Mm -hmm. like I was on this track in my early twenties to be this like touring bassist violinist. And I went to a Ampeg bass event at Sam Ash music in West LA and saw Daryl Jones, who's the bassist for the Rolling Stones and was Miles Davis's bass player. And it's a phenomenal, like legend bassist, legendary bassist. And he, um, did this this event and I literally waited in line to meet him after and I was like hey do do you give bass lessons and he was like no (laughs) like what are you talking about I tour with the Rolling Stones I mean of course he didn't say that but he was like I don't know maybe and so I, I sent gave him my card and he called me two weeks later and he taught me bass lessons I was his first student and I think honestly it's just asking like a lot of people think the reason he's never taught lessons is because no one's asked him. Mm-hmm. And so I literally just waited and asked him. I think you just have to be bold and and you ask. Has he been a mentor to you? Yeah. I mean, I like that was actually like a turning point in my career path. When I was taking lessons from him, I, I sort of like started to understand longevity in music comes from copyrights and ownership of assets and... I didn't necessarily know that that was publishing at the time, but like just being more of like a writer or copyright holder, Mm -hmm. I guess. And so instead of like playing, I shifted gears and started writing full time. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I did, I started writing for synchronization work. So, so that's how I like ended up starting my company and doing what I do now. So I have a couple questions. First is you mentioned a couple times, obviously first with the violin, then with the bass that you started things later in your life or career. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, I think, get kind of confused or feel like they can't go toward a path that they're starting up later because they're like, oh, it's too late for me. Mm-hmm. So what would be your advice to those who are hesitant to try a new form of creativity because they think it's quote unquote too late? Yeah, I mean, I'm going through that right now because I've run a company. I mean, like I, I say, I do things later in life. But I, I did start my company when I was like 26 and now I'm 33 and I've been doing that for the last six, seven years of my life and I haven't been actually physically in the studio as much and writing. And so I am like getting back into that right now and, you know, going to record this album in London on Friday. So so I think that there's always a level of like rebirthing in a way. So I'm feeling that exact thing at the moment. And honestly, like, I procrastinate, (laughs) but I also work well under pressure and deadlines. So I think having this this external deadline set to do this album is like, you have to just do it. You have Mm -hmm. to make it happen. There's no question. So like setting a deadline and having 
like internal goals and and like and deadlines and and someone external to hold you accountable. Yeah, like yeah. I need that personally mm-hmm. to. I think otherwise a lot I'll, of us do. Yeah, I otherwise do well. I won't do it. I'll I need just, the shame. Yeah, I, I'm like I. This is an absolute deadline. I have to just do that, and even then, I'll wait till the very last minute to do it. Right, and then I throw it together and like don't sleep, and you know, for better or worse, that's what happens. But just doing it, mm-hmm. you have to just do it. And I sat down to start writing just the other night, and I was like, I suck. I can't write anymore. I'm just done with that. I'm done with composing. I'm done playing violin. And then I just kept going because I had to. And and then I was like, oh, I had this breakthrough last night, just mm-hmm. last night. And I listened to the, and I went to bed like these ideas suck. And I'm, I thought I was going to throw all of them away this morning, like today. And I got up and I listened to them and I was like, oh yeah, like this will work. And so, and then I, I started having all these other ideas. And so it's just led to like this whole other like mental headspace. And it's like, I'm 12 again, like wanting to go home and, and play violin, you know, like that's all that I want to do at the moment. And so I think honestly, just pushing yourself to do it and like having a list of goals of like, here's what I want. Here are my top five priorities this week. And, and looking at your calendar and deciding what fits in that space. Like, okay, these, I'm going to write this and record violin and do X, Y, Z, and then actually schedule it into your calendar and Mm -hmm. make it happen. So you mentioned having a creative block or a mental block. Do you think the best way to push through that is literally just forcing yourself or like bulldozing through it? Like what are your methods and what would you recommend to someone else who's in a similar state? Yeah, I think um, that's what I do. <laughs> yes, bulldoze. Yeah. You have to just push through. And and for us, we write on deadlines all the time. Mm-hmm. And in order to be a composer or a like a music licensing company – you have to work on really tight deadlines. So so we don't, sometimes we don't have a choice. And when I don't have a choice, I get help. So I know that I can rely on these composers to do this by this day. And if I can contribute, then I will. And so mm-hmm. I just have to push myself to, to get through it. But yeah, bulldozing through is, is my method. <laughs> I love it. Classic bulldozer. <laughs> So I want to get back to your story and your path a little bit. I know you moved here from Oklahoma, yes, right? Yes, I did. And then did you instantly start touring? When did that all start happening? No, I mean, playing violin, classical violin as a kid is very was very intensive for me. And especially how I do things, it's like kind of all or nothing. And mm-hmm. so like surprise. <laughs> um, so by the time I turned 18 and I got to my senior year of high school, I was I was trying to quit violin and I was giving up. I was like, I'm done with music. I'm burnt out. I have to stop. My orchestra director, conductor sat me down and was like, you can't stop. I want you to be the first chair violin for this year and I want you to lead the orchestra and I want you to play your like the barber your solo I played the barber violin concerto like with on the final concert before I graduated high school so I was literally oh man like going back backwards I was graduating high school I was moving to LA I was playing my barber violin concerto with my 
orchestra giving a speech at graduation because I was valedictorian in my high school and like walking first and planning the senior graduation party (laughs) all while my grandmother was like had just passed away that week. Like I literally, she got sick like two weeks before I graduated and before all this was happening. And I went to visit her in the hospital and she was like, the first thing she said to me was, Kristen, I don't think I'm going to make it to your concert. And I was like, uh, I lost it. And then it was really hard to like continue and like push through that, like everything I had to do with, you know, her passing away and she didn't make the concert. And then my grandfather, her husband, like showing up and like just sobbing the whole concert. And like, it was just a lot of pressure and a lot of emotions and a lot of things happening all at once. And so literally I did all of this and then graduated and I drove to LA. The second I graduated high school, I finished finals and people were still taking finals at my school and I was driving, moving to LA and I got here and I, again, like quit music and I was like, I'm done. I'm burnt out. I have to stop. And so I just hopped around a bit and went to different, I went to UC Santa Barbara and I left after a quarter. And then I went to like Santa Monica Community College, Pasadena City College. I took art classes, photography, um, astronomy, <laughs> French, Italian, like whatever I wanted because I didn't want to have like a traditional, just like I need a diploma and I'm going to go through the bureaucracy of this school to get that. It was more like I want to learn about mm. art and language and the stars and planets and, you know, whatever I can. And then eventually after doing that for about a year, it led me back into all music again. So I went to Pasadena City College and I took bass and choir and songwriting and theory. And and then I ended up at the LA Recording School and did sound engineering. Why was taking that break from your initial creative path important for you? And what did it do to reset you? It's important to get perspective, you know, like you need a break. And I mean, and that's hard for me to accept because here I am running a company and a team and I feel like I always have to be there, but then I always feel like I have to be recording and writing and be creative and it's a lot to balance. And then life on top of all of that and just being like a good human and trying to be healthy and, you know, like there's so much that goes into like everything that like, I don't know, being a creative like means, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's, it's. It's a tough journey, I think. It is. I commend you because I feel like very – I feel kinship with you because I feel like I run from thing to thing to thing because – Personally, I don't think I feel like enough yeah. and I need to fill up all these spaces to prove to myself or to the world that I have value Totally. when really it's like you're inherently valuable just because you were born. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. We're getting super meta on this Saturday. No, you're totally right. Like I think about that quite often actually Mm -hmm. and and it's it's a mission to sort of like take that in every day though because it's so big picture. That it's like, well, then now what do I do? It's like, how do I prove it? How do I prove it? Yeah. You know, but I keep myself really busy too. Yeah. But I, and you're so successful. I mean, and so that's got to be its own, it's beautiful to have that success. But I'm sure like, you're like, well, that's the only way success can happen is if I'm spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. Mm -hmm. But I think it was like really astute of your 18 year old self to know that you needed that break and to 
go back to her every so often and say, hey, yeah. thank you, and I'm trying to honor you. It's interesting, like, looking back on that time of my life and my time now, and I feel like the the decisions I make now are more conscious in a way, but when I was 18, it was like, well, this is just what I'm doing. Like, mm-hmm. you just are doing and not necessarily knowing why you're doing it. Like, I just knew I was burnt out. I have to stop, and it was so much pressure. And now looking back on it, I'm like, well, maybe I would have just consciously decided to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do like spin and spin and spin until you decide to stop spinning. And sometimes it's like a process to go through to stop spinning or sometimes it's a conscious just effort of like, I'm not going to do this anymore. But it's a that's never going to like end. There's there's no like end to the path. I think it's the path that that is like the whole journey and, and like, I just try <laughs> the best I can to live consciously on that path, but it's really like a, a daily minute to minute challenge to do something like that, you know? Yeah. I mean, when you are someone who's results oriented and who gets results really well, how do you commit to the journey? Like, what are your tactics to stay present? Things that I don't do, which is meditating. <laughs> um, I ha- I did go through a period of time where I was meditating because I was going through a really hard time, and it did help me. Cognitive behavioral therapy type stuff. I don't know if you know of this, but like there are some amazing books on that, mm-hmm. and just reading about it and studying it. Like you don't have to be in like an intensive therapy, I don't think, but understanding that and like combining that with meditation and being conscious. But I mean, having said that, this is this isn't an easy path. I used to not be able to sit down at all and be still, like not even for a minute. But then I was, I literally with meditating had to build up, build up to doing eight minutes of like, I can now sit here for eight minutes That's and huge. it's okay. <laughs> it's huge to be able to sit in eight minutes for silence. Yeah. It sounds so short, but you try it. It's an eternity. Yeah. And, <laughs> and like, I literally set a timer for one minute and sat there and then it was like, oh, okay. I could do that. And then I had to literally build up with a timer to eight minutes. And it it taught me how to sort of like stop and take a breath. And, and like for me, sound is such a big thing in my life. So like the thing that instantly grounds me is listening to the room, like listening to everything that's happening around me. So if I was to sit here in my house and meditate, like Typically, you would hear my three dogs walking around or barking or doing something. You'd hear birds. You'd hear cars passing. You'd hear like maybe an air conditioning noise or whatever. And that stuff is super grounding for me. That's a great tactic. I've never heard anyone else offer that up. But yeah, listening to the ambient noise of a room. Billy Joel once says like, find music everywhere. Yeah. You know, and I love that. And so now when I hear a siren, I try to harmonize with it. Oh my God. I tell like our sound designers and engineers to do that exact thing. Like if you're trying to create sound design, because we do a lot of sound design for trailers and Game of Thrones. Oh yeah, yeah. So good. We have to get into that. (laughs) But I tell people like to literally get creative with your sounds and Mm -hmm. and, like take mics with you and record like cars passing and trains and whatever you do. Like I hear music and all of that stuff all the time, like harmonies. You can get song ideas all the time just from being alive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do. I did that today. And I like last night recorded my new like soda stream like bottles. Like I opened it and like used that as a little hit in one of these songs. That's so cool. <laughs> but like just shout like, out to Soda Stream if you want to sponsor this podcast, we're here for it. We both use you. Soda Stream's the best. 
I think when you get yourself onto that path of like hearing everything around you mm-hmm. and thinking of it as musical, it it just like changes the wiring in your brain, literally. I think physically. It opens you up. It does. Yeah. And then you start hearing it more. It's kind of like the punch bug thing where like mm-hmm. if you're looking for it, you'll find it. Um, I think if you're looking for the musicality and sounds and your life, you'll start to notice those things. And that can lead you into a new like creative path. And And I think the stillness, like you said, if you're actually present, like you can't notice those things if you're not present. Yeah. You're going to pass them by and then in a way life is passing you by. But if you're still enough, even when you're in waking life, not in meditation, to take in the full surrounding of whatever you're in, Mm -hmm. you're going to be more present. You're going to be more creative. You're open to life. Yeah, totally. And like last night I was recording these violin parts and and – I was really hitting a wall and I just kept trying to play these different parts. I'm like, this isn't working. This isn't working. This isn't working. I'm like, what what am I doing? Like, just listen, like take a minute and listen to the parts and think about like, what do I want? What works right here? And, and then it just came to me and like, I did that again this morning. I'm like, oh my God, why did I play it this way? This is an obvious choice. And then I like sang a voice memo into my phone so that I can remember to do it when you guys leave. <laughs> I'm excited for you. <laughs> I'm excited for me too. <laughs> so you ended up touring for a long time from 2008 to 2011, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. people always glamorize touring. It's like, oh, we're on tour. It's so cool. Yeah. What's it really like? And what was that process like for you? <laughs> God, it is, it is not glamorous, yeah. especially when you start. And I think even after a while, like it's, it's hard. Touring is really difficult. I mean, we were sleeping on like couches. I slept on a blow up mattress at Stanford University in their like, um, observatory and which sounds cool but it was like (laughs) it was an experience yeah like we stayed with this guy who does their their um radio show and was it scary well no i mean he he lives there he lives in this like this observatory and so he'd have to go into this space and like open up the the like ceiling to t- tilt this telescope. I mean, it's these massive, like, I don't know how big, I'm not even going to try to guess, massive telescopes to like observe the, the stars sky. and the planets <laughs> and what, I don't know what they were looking at, you know, but anyway, I've literally like slept on deflated air mattresses and in observatories and couches and, you know, driving in vans for hours and hours and loading all your gear in at midnight and talking to people in the audience and having no one show up to any of your shows and having to play anyway. Like, How do you deal with that? It's hard. You just kind of do it. And if you're a solo artist, I think it's harder. Because I was in a band, it was like, well, it's just... You're in it together. We're in it together. Yeah, you feel yeah. like a loser when you're... I mean, I've definitely played to like gigs where there are four people there. And yeah. I do try to make it worthwhile for the four people, but you're just like... God, is it ever totally. going to change? I mean, I still do that. I throw yeah. events, you know, for our, our business mm-hmm. and I'm like, no one's going to show up. I have this like day of panic of like, oh my God, there are going to be four people here. And then I like panic, invite a bunch of people. <laughs> like every single person in your yeah, contact. Like, okay. Now we're going to open it up to like friends and neighbors and like your parents and, you know, your dogs and everybody who wants to come, aunt and uncle, whoever's in town. But what I have learned though from that is is you can't mark your life or career off of one single moment. 
it's the accumulation of all of these events that leads you down whatever path you end up on. So because no one shows up to one of your shows doesn't mean you need to quit doing what you're doing. Maybe a thousand people will show up to your next one or in five years that will happen. Or maybe like at some point you reach a turning point where you're like, no one's still showing up. So now what do I do? Like maybe I'll start writing full time instead and not perform. Or maybe I'll like get into photography and photograph bands. Like art is sort of should be a fluid thing and just because one thing isn't working doesn't mean you have to just give up and like if you think you're going to be this artist then like you have to go to this like fallback that is not in like an art art path at all you know mm-hmm. I don't think it has to be that way well I think that there's power in the dreams you find on the way to your dreams mm-hmm. but it is sometimes hard to understand why certain dreams weren't meant to come true you've had some dreams that haven't come true mm-hmm What do you think the meaning of those has been? And like, how did you recover from that creative heartbreak? Um, still recovering. (laughs) I'm in recovery as well. (laughs) I'm in constant recovery. It's a 12-step program that never ends. (laughs) Um, I think it, it doesn't end. I think it's just acceptance, you know, like, like I'm, I'm, very persistent to like an annoyance, you know? And so I don't stop no matter what. So I will keep knocking on that door forever. And I don't get to a point where it's exhausted. I just keep knocking. And whether that like is the same exact path or like the same door is a different story, you know? Like that door is not opening. Okay, let me try this door. Let me try this door. Let me try this door. And it's just like once you get through, then that is like, okay, now what? Now next door. And so for me, it's it's not just like this dream is failed and crushed and over and I I wait and I do cry about it, but but I it doesn't like stop me from continuing to do the mm. next thing, you know. You almost you just have to figure out a new way to approach it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of merit in taking the long way around to get to a place. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that straight path. I mean, I'm telling you, like everything I do, I don't know like what I'm doing when I'm doing it. I just do it and then I figure it out. Like mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily this like planner of like when I started 411 Music Group, it was like, I have a five-year business plan and like, there, here's our budget. And, you know, it, I'm sure it frustrates my entire team because it's like, what's our budget this year? And what are we doing for this? And what are we doing for that? I'm like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> we're just going to go do it. And so I'm very much like a do person. Like, go and do it and make it happen. And if you can plan it and then work backwards, that is actually more efficient. Mm-hmm. But I think like a lot of, I'm a massive perfectionist and that will stop me and hinder me from doing it because I think the plan has to be perfect. And instead of doing it that way, I just go and do, and then I fix things as I go and adjust. Just get something down. You know, I think that that's a huge thing. That's one of the quotes that I love bringing up again and again on the show is don't let perfect be the enemy of good. We got to get our work out there. Laura Escudet um, who we both kind of know and we've I've had on the podcast friend of the show says do B minus work. Mm. And I think that's so great. Like I would much rather do B minus work and get something out there than like have A plus work that like never that. leaves my head. Yeah, you're telling that to the valedictorian who made straight A's. <laughs> you're like, that's some bullshit. No, that it's like a challenge. You're yeah. you're right. And 
for me, it was like, I have to make straight A's no matter what. Mm -hmm. No matter what it takes, I am doing this. And it literally took me going to my teachers after finals, not finals, but like after tests and be like, I didn't make an A on this test. How do I make that happen? Mm. Do I need to do extra credit? Do I need to like retake this? Like I was so determined, self-determined to just, this is what I'm going to do no matter what. And so I, like for better or worse, was like, you know. Well, that's like, probably why you're an entrepreneur. I guess. But, yeah. But it's also, it is a bit of a hindrance though, yeah. you know, because then it's like, if it's not perfect, it's not worth doing, but it's yeah. so not the case. And I'm finding that with the composing that I'm doing right now, like the imperfections are what is really interesting and the in-between moments. That is where you find magic the life yeah. in what in in your art and what you're doing so i want to talk a little bit about your writing career and then we'll shift into the business i and a lot of people who listen would love to become more of a full-time songwriter and so i'm curious about how you made that trek like what were the physical steps that got you there well i mean i i stopped touring so i was taking lessons from daryl i thought i was going to be like the next bassist for smashing pumpkins mm -hmm. and violinist and then i realized i'm not going to do that i actually don't even like touring i'm going to start writing and it literally was just like knocking on doors again lots of door knocking and submitting music to publishers production music libraries music supervisors and because i was listening to and interested in a lot of different genres of music doing synchronization work like sort of lend itself to the music and writing that I was wanting to do. So yeah, I, I literally just submitted with different writing teams music to publishers mm -hmm. and they listened and called us and they were like, yeah, can you, can we take these songs? And, and I was like, oh, well you can't have this song. This is going to be a hit. And they're like, okay, we'll write some new songs. And so we did and then I literally kept that song that was going to be a hit and it sat on my hard drive for four years and like never went anywhere. So I always encourage people to just get their music out there, like send it to people and don't be afraid to submit your music and ask for feedback, you know, like be informed in where you're sending your music and where like what that person is wanting. Mm -hmm. So don't send like EDM to someone who's like a music supervisor who's only working on like a period piece or a, a you know a show from the 50s so know where you're sending your music and be informed on on who you're sending it to and what they need but just do it like mm -hmm. just start somewhere and once you do you'll start to pay, you have to listen and pay attention to to what people are telling you in the feedback and find your path from there I think so then how did you shift from that into starting your own business? And can you tell me a little bit about what your company does? I started writing for different music, production music companies, libraries, and publishers, music supervisors. And I was basically doing work for hires. I was selling my rights to other people. And so I just thought, why am I selling my music when I could be aggregating this myself? Much easier said than done. And so... <laughs> I started aggregating different writing teams, artists. Um, I started signing bands and then and composing for my own catalog. I started literally on just started a paper or a company on paper 
in like September 2012 and launched a very small indie catalog in January 2014 and then started again knocking on more doors, like going to conferences, meeting new people, trying to figure out how am I going to pitch this music out. I mean, it's honestly, it's just like a, a, again, like a process that just happened and from doing, from doing it. And when you say an indie catalog, just because there's people who might not be familiar, you had a music library that you curated, right, from all these different songwriters, and then you use that and people can pull from it for TV shows, commercials, podcasts, that kind of thing? Yeah, so so basically we're like a creative sync house and music publisher. So we started with writing or signing one-stop artists and then built a score catalog, sound design, trailer music. We started sub-publishing um, international catalogs, and we license all of that music out for film and TV. And then from there, so we yeah, we created basically like a one-stop production library, uh, music library. And then we started more of a traditional like publishing arm where we could sign writers to publishing deals, do co-writes and songwriting camps, and sign bigger catalogs as a sync agent. And then, and then we still compose all like music for shows. So we score probably like 10 shows a year and then do custom promos and trailers and video games and, and then license all of our music out for all of those, that media as well. And you recently did a trailer for Game of Thrones. We did. Just because everyone's obsessed with that show, even in the wake of people being pissed off at it, yes. we're still all obsessed <laughs> What was that process like? We literally just licensed one of our um, sound design elements for for that trailer. So we didn't even like compose the music they used. I think the music from the show, mm -hmm. that score, the, the editors just took a hit from our sound design catalog and started using it in that trailer and then combined that with other people's sound design elements as well. So there were multiple companies involved in like licensing their music and sound design elements for that trailer. That's really cool because then all those people, all those creatives are collaborating and they don't even know it. Right. Like we're all intricately connected. Oh, I just showed this trailer on a panel at Midam in the south of France, like early June. And the guy next to me, I showed the trailer and the guy next to me was like, we worked on that too. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> we're friends. Yeah. They had, they licensed some of their sound design as well. And I wanted to show that example because a lot of producers don't think about sound design as a, a viable like form of income, like to, mm -hmm. to like work on sound design as then, or like that it's musical, but it totally is. I always notice that on, especially like a show, um, like Walking Dead. Yeah. The sound of the zombie heads going. Oh, it's yeah. so good. Well, then the classic example yeah. is Jurassic Park, where I think they had like train sounds and truck noises as the like roar of the dinosaurs. And horror movies, they put in like high noises that you can't even hear. So it's out of our like frequency hearing range, but you it's there and it it makes you like feel angsty and and like you can feel it. It's That's really fascinating. Yeah. So I know you've mentioned this project you're working on a couple times. It's mm -hmm. over in London, mm -hmm. right? So tell me a little bit about it and what the concept is there. So um, <laughs> I know it's heavy we, and light. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Thank you for uh -huh. that segue. I've been running this 401 Music Group for, you know, since 2012. And it's taken me out of the studio and now I'm running a company. I'm running point with writing teams and scoring shows. 
executive producing, score producing, but I've, I've felt like this massive creative lull just in my own life. And so in order to try to get back into more composing, like I feel like my team is now pretty good and they're going on their own. So I'm taking a step back from a lot of, of my former responsibilities and focusing more on creative and like global partnerships. I came up with the concept to record some live orchestras in London and co-write with these different composers from around the world. So we have two LA composers we're working with um, and I'm co-writing with them and a London-based composer and a drum and bass DJ Kino from Hospital Records. And we're creating this minimalist score album that we're releasing in mid-October. And you're saying a big piece of it is showing that something can be both light and dark at the same time, that life isn't actually lived in these extremes. I mean, maybe it is, but at least both are happening mm-hmm. at once. Yeah, so Two the, things can be true. Yeah, like the, yeah, so the concept of that album is, I'm calling it the London Project, the light and dark, because I was almost in a plane crash in May. Basically, like I was on a flight back from the ECMAs, East Coast Music Awards in Prince Edward Island and like the farthest east Canada you can possibly go. And then I was flying from there to Toronto, Toronto to LA. And on my, all of the flights all day were delayed. And when I got to Toronto, I was actually sick too. I had bronchitis. So I was sleeping on the floor of the airport and I was waiting for this flight And I got on the plane and I had the whole road to myself. I was like, thank God I can just go to sleep, which I did. But then we were delayed for like three more hours because of mechanical issues. So we just sat there on the runway while they fixed things. And then we were cleared to take off and we, we were good for about two hours. And then halfway through the flight, the plane started getting hot and then the captain came on and was like, flight attendant, please come to the flight deck. And I was like, uh, when does that ever happen? So I sat up and five minutes later, the captain said, well, folks, um, all of our generators have failed except for one and we need to do an emergency landing. The closest airport is in Minneapolis. And so we are going to land in 25 minutes. Flight attendants, please please prepare the cabin for landing. And we were like, uh, okay. And the plane was like silent. And so they came through every single row and looked to make sure it was completely clear. And then they came on the the intercom and they're like, just to remind you, there are two emergency exits in the front, two over the wings, two in the back. And we all just like looked at each other like, this is real. And I immediately went to like, okay, if we crash, I'm just going to die. Like, I won't even know. I'm just like going to be dead. And, and then that's it. So I went to this immediate acceptance and then I thought, oh my God, my mom won't be able to survive this. So I need to survive. And so I literally counted the seconds till we landed. And then when we landed, they had the whole runway closed and they had emergency vehicles on every single entry point into the runway. And it was like out of a movie, like we landed and they chased our plane and swarmed our plane on the runway and evaluated it to make sure that it was okay, which it was. And then we taxied and got to the gate and then they explained what had happened. 
but it was so traumatic the whole experience and then and then it was also interesting like observing people after the fact because we got off the plane and people were like well where's all of the like stuff that I bought and in like what's it called like the um duty-free stuff like where's all my where are my bags I was like you guys we almost died like what are you you're worried about your liquor right now <laughs> you're worried about your duty free. I mean maybe that's why it's, yeah, like, it's like I need my Toblerone where is it vodka <laughs> so so yeah I got home and I slept for three days. And Straight? Yeah, basically. You just I mean, wake I, up to go to the bathroom. Yeah, I mean, I would get up and like, I did work in that time, but I stayed home. I didn't leave the house for three days. I slept a lot and I woke up and I was like, the concept of this album needs to be the light and dark of everything that's happening in life. So this very intense thing that just happened, everything's fine. And and it sort of propelled me into this other thought process of like, oh, well, what do I want to accomplish like in my life? And it's not – it for me, it wasn't goals. It was like I never got to the, a place of peace like mentally. And I, how do I do that? And like mm-hmm. I need to be back in the studio. I need to be writing and recording and – and accept the fact that there are these bad things and good things happening all the time around us and like every minute of every day. So that like basically birthed the idea of this album. And so each composer, I've asked them to give me like what they consider a light piece and a dark piece. And um, we're putting it together in this like cohesive string arrangement, like building weird ethereal score so that's the concept Kristen that is such a beautiful story and what a gift you've given everyone who's listening right now so that even if they you know god willing never have to go through something that traumatic they can sit and evaluate their life if if it was ending today what have I not done on a spiritual level that I will regret yeah and it's like like we said so many of us are spinning all the time but peace is really it's the ultimate gift Mm mm-hmm and we can have it any moment, regardless of outside factors. Yeah. So that's a beautiful thing. And then I think, too, taking that time, if you do go th- through something traumatic, taking that time to synthesize what just happened to you and then turn that pain into purpose. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, and I'm, I'm sort of hesitant to talk sometimes about my process and path because, again, like everybody's different. And so I think it's important to realize that and to know that me – like landing and sleeping and then thinking like I thought it would be like oh I didn't travel enough I didn't go to these places I didn't do enough but for me it was like that I never got to a place of peace and rest within myself and I was never able to live and appreciate the present moment because I was always constantly looking to the future but but like 10 other people on the plane could have like had that. Oh my God, I'd never went to Africa and like, Mm -hmm. I need to go to Africa. So like, again, like there, there isn't a right or wrong and what like you end on when that something like that happens, it's just more like evaluating it and, and look, take like taking the time to look at it Mm -hmm. and then letting that drive you into like, doesn't have to be a complete turn of life. Like everything's changed now, but it does, it has like impacted the way that I think about things and the way that I handle different scenarios that are thrown at me now. Something we talk a lot about on the show is fear. And one of the goals of the show is to help redefine people's relationship with fear, to not let it be the one in the driver's seat. Yeah. Well, what is your relationship with fear, first of all? And and when fear does try to get in the driver's seat, how do you say, hey, get in the back? <laughs> It's really prevalent in my life always. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I have a lot of anxiety. That's, I think, why violin really helped me when I was a kid. It was the only thing that would, like, focus my mind 100%. Everything else, like, didn't work. So I still struggle with that. But I think I, I've turned it into a driver instead of, like, a, you know, a hindrance for me. So, yeah, thinking about, like, I'll literally wake up in a panic, like, a lot of days, a lot. And like to the point where I'm like nauseous every day and I'm evaluating what's going on with me, like what's wrong. And then that turns into a whole other like source of anxiety of like, who knows what it could be. Like I could be dying. I could be sick and I don't know You might know just it. have acid reflux. Like am I pregnant? Like- <laughs> I used to barf every morning and then I realized I had acid reflux. <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah, like I literally like freak out about like a lot of stuff. Yeah. And then I have to find, figure out a way to like calm myself. And I think I wasn't taught as a baby to Mm self-soothe and which is also another thing I think about a lot randomly, which is weird, (laughs) but, but it really like all these things impact your life and how you handle situations. So, so yeah, for me, fear is like a massive struggle and constant source of anxiety. But again, I think that's why I, I do a lot because I won't do it if I like think if I let the fear that's constantly there inside of me dictate my life, then I literally will do nothing. Like I won't get out of bed probably because I'm too scared of like, what's wrong? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with all the people around me? And so I I literally have to just like get up and do it. And then once I start doing things, I like calm down into it and I focus in like in on whatever I'm doing. And, Mm. and it just... Interesting. It ends up like, yeah, it changes the whole day too, you know. Almost like the way you just described that, I saw the fear behind you like a big boogeyman. Mm-hmm. And then as the day went on, it got smaller and smaller and smaller yeah. and smaller until it was just a little pipsqueak. It looked like one of those little people in the game of life that you put in your truck. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and then it was like, okay, that. you're not so, so bad. <laughs> when I'm at Air Studios on Friday <laughs> trying to play violin, I'm, that's exactly what I'm going to think about. <laughs> you're going to not be trying. You're going to be succeeding. One of my, I had this like very intense Russian violin teacher at one point, like when I was a uh, 13 or 14, I think. And he, oh my God, it was kind of fucked up because like we'd go into the competitions, which are very intense. And, um, he'd be like, okay, just remember, like, don't think about purple monkeys. Like when you're in there, like you just shouldn't don't like that is really bad luck. And like, it's going to mess you up. So don't think about purple monkeys. And he said purple monkeys, like 10 times. And so all I could think about when I went in, this is like right before I walked in the door. Why purple monkeys? Is that even a thing? No, it was literally just like, like a mind fuck of like, like, okay, don't do this. And then he mentioned it so many times that that's all I could think about. And it would really like fuck with me, but he did it. It was almost like a joke and like a funny thing, but, but, but it sounds like a sociopath. I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) But, but like, I guess that is what, that kind of stuff does dictate what you, how you deal with fear Mm -hmm. because I could have been like, okay, cool. Yeah. Got it. And then you just literally like go in and refocus and, and like do what you have to do and focus on the task at hand. But, but like, if you're listening to that voice in the room all the time, that's all that you're going to think about. And it is going to mess you up and it's going to like change the way that you like dive into a performance or like 
like write something or do something, you know? So I think of fear as like the purple monkeys, like haunting me in the room. <laughs> like you have to literally just like put it behind you and be like, yeah, no, that's yeah. Purple monkeys let that don't today. actually even exist. So right. neither do you fear back <laughs> off. So I have Love two it. final questions. I think creativity is intricately connected to the inner child. And I like to think about my little Lauren a lot and taking care of her And I also like to think about what she would say to me. So if you and your little self Mm -hmm. were standing in the same room and she's looking at you and seeing all the amazing things you've accomplished, who you are, what you've overcome, and what you've done to take care of her, what do you think she would say to you and why? Oh, man. Like, you're going to make me cry on a Saturday. (laughs) If you want to. That's really deep stuff. You know, like that is a... I mean, as a as a kid, I was, like, super curious, and so I'd probably have asked, like, every single imaginable thing, like, you know, of, like, why, 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 why? <laughs> and I think I would, like, I think just honestly, like, tell my adult self to be, continue to be curious, you know? Like, always ask questions and and evaluate, like people around you and yourself and and ask why and don't be afraid of it you know like that's why I like Aurora so much to be honest is because like she has this childlike persona in a way but her lyrics are all about like not suppressing your your dreams and letting fear like run your life and so I think just being able to like run free in whatever way that that is in your life um and as and as an adult, I think I would tell little me not to be afraid. Like, don't be scared of trying and asking and going and doing things and, you know, stay, I guess, like young in spirit and mind, you know, and like never give up. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, she hasn't and you haven't and. You're going to keep going forever. You're just going to keep knocking on those doors. Yeah, I don't have a choice. And not seeing those purple monkeys. <laughs> no purple monkeys. They're Get not out. real. Get Bye. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to my guest, Kristen Ag. For more info on Kristen, you can follow her on Instagram at Chris10AG. Ha 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 ha. I didn't realize that till I read it. It's at K-R-I-S, the number 10, one zero, A-G. A-G, like the letters. You can also learn more about 411 Music Group at 411 Music Group and at 411musicgroup.com. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. Thanks to Nicole Poulos for booking Kristen. Follow her at Sideways Media on Twitter. And again, thank you. If you enjoy the show, the best way to share that is by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on Apple Podcasts, following on Spotify, and if you really love the show, take a screenshot of yourself listening and share it to your Instagram stories. Tag at Unleash Your Inner Creative and at Lauren LaGrasso, and I will repost it. My wish for you this week is that you take time to really ask yourself what your spiritual goals are. Peace is definitely one for me, too. Let's keep each other updated. I believe in you. Talk soon.